Section 11 of the South American Republics, Volume 2, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Piotr Nater. Part 2, Chile. Chapter 3, The War of Independence, Part 2. In the Argentine, the position of the Patriot government was even worse. With civil war actively raging in the one country and only half in check by foreign bayonets in the other, and with both governments struggling against financial difficulties, it is no wonder that the warships which were expected to sweep the Spanish frigates from the Pacific did not arrive. The delay cost the Patriots dear. In January 1818, four Spanish ships mounting 230 cannon sailed from Talcahuano and landed 3,400 well-equipped soldiers, most of them peninsular veterans. San Martin, a master of the art of recruiting, had raised a second army composed principally of Chileans and nearly equal in numbers to the original army of the Andes, so that his total force amounted to 9,000 men, while the Spanish troops did not exceed 5,000. The Argentine general was in the dark as to where the enemy would land, and had already issued orders for O'Higgins, who was in command near Concepcion, to retreat, resolved on concentrating his forces near Valparaiso. Even after the Spanish army had disembarked at Talcahuano, San Martin was in doubt whether Osorio would not re-embark and strike at some unprotected harbour near Santiago. But the latter came up steadily by the land route, encountering no opposition, though somewhat hampered by broken bridges and the bareness of the country of horses and supplies for the retreating o'higgins had left his track a desert the farther the spaniards penetrated toward santiago the more difficult became the feeding of their army and the more certainly disastrous a retreat in case of reverse o'higgins stopped at talca to await orders and there on the twentieth of january eighteen eighteen he defiantly made proclamation of chile's absolute independence of spain Three weeks later, the approach of Asorio's army forced him to abandon the place, and he retired to form a junction with San Martin. The latter completed his concentration and advanced with an army of over 7,000 men, superior in all arms and especially in cavalry and artillery. About a hundred miles south of Santiago, he met the Spaniards and won some cavalry skirmishes. The enemy retired towards Talca, unwilling with inferior forces to bring on a general action where defeat meant annihilation, and even contemplating a retreat to Talcahuano. But behind them lay the deep river Maule, and San Martin made a dash to reach it first. The two armies marched rapidly on parallel lines, with the Patriot cavalry harassing the Spanish rear. On the afternoon of the 19th of March, the Spaniards wheeled into line in excellent position just outside the city of Talca, with their west flank protected by a stretch of broken ground called the Cancharayada. San Martin was following close, but the partial attack which he immediately made was interrupted by darkness before any decisive results were obtained. Hastily going into camp too near the enemy's lines, and all unprepared for battle, the patriots were surprised at about nine o'clock in the evening by the assault of the whole Spanish army. The alarm was given by the cavalry pickets, but only a few had time to get into line of battle before the enemy was upon them. San Martin, over on the extreme right, heard a few volleys, and then the noise of confused flight, scattering shots, and the thundering hoofbeats of the pursuing cavalry. 
O'Higgins had been wounded while trying to get his men into order, and from that moment the Patriots in his neighbourhood thought of nothing but escape through the darkness. The centre and left, including the cavalry, dispersed in the wildest confusion, abandoning the artillery. The right wing, composed of 3,500 infantry, was not attacked, and waited in stupefaction for two or three hours, not clearly understanding what had happened. Its officers held a council, put Las Heras in command, and by daybreak the division was 16 miles from the field of battle. In the meantime, San Martin and O'Higgins had found each other, and soon were busily engaged in collecting the scattered cavalry. The Patriot loss in killed and wounded had been small, but a third of their number had deserted, and many of the remainder searched in vain for their regiments. However, the Royalist army had been nearly as badly dispersed in making the night attack as the Patriots in receiving it. No effective pursuit could be made, and San Martin retreated on Santiago practically unmolested. The first news of the disaster was carried to the capital by fugitive officers. They reported that San Martin was killed, and O'Higgins mortally wounded, and everything lost. Shouts of Viva el Rey resounded through the streets, leading citizens opened communication with Osorio, and the republicans prepared for flight to Mendoza or Valparaiso. But the next day word came that San Martin himself was safe, and the day following a despatch saying he had 4,000 men under his orders. With O'Higgins's arrival in the city, the revolutionary disorders were suppressed, and soon San Martin rode into the city. Though half dead through loss of sleep, as he drew rein at his horse, he made the one speech of his life, laconically assuring the people that he expected to win the next battle, and that right soon. Not forgetting precautions which ensured a safety retreat to the northern provinces or the Argentine, he devoted himself to reorganizing the army, and within ten days after its dispersal had five thousand men together, well provided and resolute to give a good account of themselves. He took a position on a low line of chalk hills seven miles southwest of Santiago, and waited for the enemy, whose numbers were now slightly superior to his own. Meanwhile the Spanish officers were greatly disappointed at the negative results of Cancharayada. Mutual reproaches flew back and forth in their council of war, many advocated maintaining the defensive, and even retreating to the south to be nearer their base. Their indecision gave San Martin the needed opportunity to gather his dispersed forces and to inspire them with his own confidence. Finally, however, Osorio advanced cautiously on Santiago, hoping that the Argentine would not risk another battle for the defense of the capital, and maneuvering to the west so as to get between the city and the sea. In front of San Martin's position lay another line of chalk hills, separated from the first by a narrow stretch of low ground. At their western end ran the road from Santiago to Valparaiso. Like the Union position at Gettysburg, this line of hills was admirably adapted for a defensive battle, and Osorio resolved to occupy it, especially as he thought his left wing extended far enough west to command the Valparaiso road, thereby securing him a communication with a new and more convenient base on the coast, and giving him a line of retreat in case of a reverse. But San Martin's quick eye saw that this option was mistaken, and that his opponent might easily be cut off. San Martin's tactical dispositions were admirably made on the momentous morning of April the 5th, 1818. He divided his army into two divisions and a reserve, 
stationing the latter on the extreme east of his line. Under cover of a heavy artillery fire, the west division rushed down the slope, across the bottom, and up the hills commanding the Valparaiso road. The counter-charge of the Spanish horsemen was repulsed by the superior Patriot cavalry, and the Spanish west wing was isolated from the rest of the army. Meanwhile, the Patriots' east division, composed of the bulk of their infantry, had charged straight across the narrow part of the bottom, and reached the high ground opposite without seeing an enemy, but there was met by a terrific charge from the Royalist infantry, and rolled in confusion back down the hills. Regardless of the artillery fire, the Spaniards were pursuing triumphantly over the low ground, when suddenly their eastern flank received the charge of the Patriot Reserve, which had advanced obliquely from its original position on the extreme east. This movement decided the battle. The Spanish infantry could not reform to meet it, and were rolled up in helpless confusion. The flying Patriot infantry rallied and returned to the attack. Their cavalry, already victorious at the other end of the line, turned and charged the west flank of the Spaniards, who, simultaneously taken at both ends and in front, were cut down by hundreds. A few managed to keep their formation and fell back to the farm of Espejo, behind whose extensive buildings and garden walls they entrenched themselves, determined to sell their lives as dearly as possible. Joined by their left wing, which, unable to reach the centre where the hard fighting had taken place, had suffered little loss, they withstood the attack of the victorious Patriot army. But the artillery was brought up, the walls knocked to pieces, and the position carried in the midst of the most frightful carnage. The infuriated Patriots gave no quarter, until General Las Eras rode among them and begged them to desist from the inhuman slaughter. Maipo was the hardest-fought battle in all the wars of South American independence. Of 5,000 royalists, 1,200 were killed, 800 wounded, and 2,200 made prisoners. Only 800 escaped, flying south toward safety at Talcahuano, of whom less than a 100 held together until they reached the Spanish fortifications. Of the patriots, more than a fifth were killed or wounded the greatest sufferers being the freed negroes whom san martin had recruited in the argentine half of these brave fellows were left on the field juan and luis carrera imprisoned at mendoza had been an embarrassment and menace to san martin and o'higgins the latter hated them too much to be willing to make terms and yet he feared that their execution would cause an insurrection by their family and party friends in chile a criminal prosecution had been trumped up against them and proceedings delayed on various pretexts the news of the disaster at cancharayada was their death sentence dr monteagudo o'higgins's representative acting as judge sentenced them to death at three o'clock one afternoon and sent them to the shooting bench at five every chilean who did not belong to the o'higgins faction was profoundly shocked at this murder Though the victims were agitators and revolutionists, they belonged to one of the most respected families in Chile. With their older brother, they had been the leaders in the first war against Spain. Their devotion to the cause of independence was unquestioned, and they embodied the national sentiment which opposed the Argentine armies remaining on Chilean soil. Pursuit of the Spaniards flying from the field of Maipo was hardly over when open opposition to O'Higgins and his policy broke out. A cavalry corps, the Usares de la Muerte, composed of Carrera partisans, had volunteered after the rout at Cancherayada 
and rendered valuable service at Maipó. O'Higgins ordered it to disband. An open cabildo met which voted the dictator's deposition, but his soldiers arrested the Carrera leader, shot him in cold blood, and the citizens had no alternative but to disperse and submit. O'Higgins undertook to crush the opposition by ferociously persecuting his republican enemies and rapaciously confiscating the property of the royalists. This so occupied him that he was unable to pay much attention to the Spaniards in the south. Osorio gathered a small force at Talcahuano, easily beat off some desultory expeditions which the patriots sent against him, and from May until September held the whole country south of the Maule. But after the slaughter at Maipo, the viceroy had all he could do defending Peru and Bolivia. Late in the year Osorio withdrew with most of his troops, leaving only meagre garrisons in the fortresses of southern Chile. San Martin had remained only a few days in Santiago, hurrying back to Buenos Aires to try to induce the Argentine government to carry out its promises of the year before, and aid in the purchase of a fleet. Just before his departure, an East Indiaman carrying forty-four guns had arrived at Valparaiso, and the Chilean treasury was emptied to pay for her. When he reached Buenos Aires, his friend Pueyrredon, the Argentine dictator, agreed to raise a loan of $500,000 and send around two ships of the Argentine navy. San Martin immediately took the road for Chile, but at Mendoza a letter came forbidding him to draw on the Argentine treasury. He resigned, but the Argentine authorities, dismayed at the consequences of his withdrawal, finally gave him $200,000. The winter storms make the Andean passes impracticable, and it was October before the general reached Santiago, where, to his delight, he found that O'Higgins had already got together a considerable squadron. The East Indiamen, bought just before Maipo, and manned by British and North American officers, had succeeded in capturing a Spanish brig. Two American privateers were shortly afterwards brought by the Chilean government, and their arrival was followed by that of an English vessel purchased by San Martin's agent in London. Others were on their way from the United States, and two Argentine ships were reported to be coming round Cape Horn. A few days prior to San Martin's return to Santiago, Chile's two frigates with two small consorts had sailed south from Valparaiso in the hope of intercepting a fleet of transports carrying 2,000 troops and a great quantity of arms which the Spanish government had sent around the Horn from Cadiz, convoyed by a fifty-gun frigate. Stormy weather had, however, scattered the royalist fleet, and more than half the transports gave up the attempt to weather the formidable promontory, though the frigate and the others succeeded. The transports evaded the Chileans and reached Callao in safety, but the frigate was caught lying at anchor at Talcahuano and proved an important addition to the Patriot Navy. The object for which San Martin had been planning and working during two years was achieved. His naval force, manned by professional sailors picked from among the best sea-fighting people of the world, was too formidable for the enemy to dare to attack. Chile was safe from invasion, and Peru lay open to a descent. San Martin's first care was to wrest southern Chile from the Spaniards, to leave them in control of a fertile and populous territory where they could recruit troops, collect provisions, and menace Santiago was not safe. Toward the end of 1818 he sent his lieutenant, Balcarce, an Argentine, against them at the head of 3,300 men. 
such a force was irresistible. Chillán, Concepcion, and Talcahuano were abandoned, and the Spanish commander shut himself up in the fortress of Valdivia. But when San Martin came to face the question of organizing and equipping an army adequate for the invasion of Peru, he found the Chilians cold and indifferent. The success of their fleet had ensured them against assault, and they appeared to be chiefly interested in getting rid of the Argentine army of occupation. The soldiers had not received their pay, and though O'Higgins issued a proclamation announcing an expedition to Peru, San Martin waited around for months without receiving the promised aid. Finally, he presented his resignation as general-in-chief of the proposed Peruvian expedition, and withdrew the army of the Andes from Santiago, leading a part over the Andes to Mendoza and leaving the rest on the Chilean side near the entrance to the pass. This measure quickly brought the governments of both Chile and Argentina to terms. His presence east of the Andes intimidated the rebels against the authorities at Buenos Aires, leaving the latter's hands free to aid him, while the O'Higgins party in Chile realized that it could not maintain itself without his support. He required $500,000 for the equipment of an army 6,000 strong, and Argentina the remainder, and he returned to Santiago in the middle of 1819 to complete his arrangements. While actively engaged in preparations, word came that civil war had again broken out in the Argentine. San Martin was compelled to make his choice between deferring to an indefinite future his cherished expedition against Peru, or abandoning his native country to probable disintegration. He remained in Chile, and though the Argentine government, under whose commission he was acting, had ceased to exist, he did not shrink from the responsibility of disposing of the army of the Andes. His men cheerfully agreed to follow him, but months went by with little accomplished, and it was not until late in 1820 that he was able to sail for Peru, and then with only 4,000 men instead of the six he had counted on. With his departure, his influence on the affairs of Chile ceased. Lord Thomas Cochrane, a very able but very erratic British naval officer, who had gone into politics and got into trouble in his native country, arrived in November 1818 to take command of the Patriot Navy. Under his dashing and restless leadership, no time was lost in pushing naval operations. The year 1819 was spent in expeditions to the Peruvian and Ecuadorian coast. Callao was repeatedly bombarded, and the Spanish fleet took refuge under the guns of the fortresses, leaving the sea free to the patriots. Failing in a desperate attempt to cut out the Spanish ships from under the very guns of the Callao batteries, Cochrane sent all his vessels except his flagship to Valparaiso, and sailed with her for Valdivia, the last port held by the Spaniards on the Chilean mainland. The place was a very Gibraltar of natural strength, and had been well fortified. Nine forts and batteries disposed on both sides of the narrow estuary were garrisoned by over a thousand men. Nevertheless, Cochrane prepared to capture them by assault with his single ship. Stopping at Talcahuano, he took on board 250 Chilean soldiers and was fortunate in finding two smaller ships. His flagship stranded, he transferred the marine to the other ships and went on. Reaching the Valdivia bar, he landed without giving the Spaniards a moment's time to bring up reinforcements, and at the head of his soldiers and marines, he attacked the outermost fort. Though defended by 360 men, its resistance was short. 
while Cochrane's main body advanced up a narrow path drawing the garrison's fire, a detachment found a neglected entrance in the rear through which they poured a volley on the defenders. Panic-stricken, the Spaniards fled to the next fort, but the Patriots followed so close that no stand could be made. One after another, all the forts on the south side on the estuary were rushed. Next day Cochrane's two smaller ships sailed into the harbour under the fire of the northern forts, and soon after the half-disabled flagship made her appearance. Seeing the longboats filling with men and the cannons of the ships ready to open fire, the Spaniards fled to the city and surrendered the following day. This capture deprived the Royalists of their last base of operations in Chile, and only the Chiloe Islands and a few scattered guerilla bands among the Indians of Araucania remained faithful. End of section 11